morning. I, uh, I want to thank Cameron and our whole worship team. Uh, really appreciate what they do. And for him just stepping in and when I ask him to, I'm glad he has the talent to do it because had it been me, we'd have been doing this little light as mine and uh, deep and wide and that would have been about it. And even at that, you'd have been going, oh my God, please let us stop this. Well, I want to deal with the elephant in the room and then we're going to get into God's word. Marcus is on personal leave for a period of time to deal with some very uh, difficult family struggles that uh, he and Abby and their family are having. Now, having said that, you're going to have to put up with me and John and some of our elders. Uh, We don't know how long temporary means temporary. We just don't know. What we do know is here's where we need to be. You need to be doing one thing. What is that? Don't say you're going to do it. Don't say it's our religious thing. We ought to pray. You need a covenant. You need to promise God that you're going to pray. Because it is the most important thing you can do for a brother and sister in Christ that are struggling, whatever it might be. You pray. I was sharing with a, a lady this week. and She was talking about she was... She's around my age, late 60s, but she said, I just don't have any ministry anymore. And I said, you're breathing, aren't you? You can pray, can't you? She said, I pray all the time. I said, then that's the most powerful ministry you could possibly have. I've shared this with Arlington many times. I don't know that I've ever shared it here. Many of you remember a sweet lady that was with us forever named Debbie Maxey. And I remember speaking at Debbie's funeral, and I've the title of my message at Debbie's funeral was, She is One of My Heroes. Because Debbie Maxey never complained, yet paraplegic, quadriplegic, never complained. When you'd go to visit her, you'd spend the whole time talking about your family. She loved Jesus. She loved other people. She loved her church. And prior to email and, and social media and every other possible way, texting to connect with each other, She led our prayer ministry from her room. We would call her, one phone call, she would make phone calls, and you could bank on it, people were praying. And I'm telling you, when she ascended and stepped in the presence of Jesus, he said, well done, because of her prayer life. My mother-in-law was that way, most godly human being I've ever met, and a true woman of prayer. We were at a family reunion one time, and if you know anything about the Heinz family, they they multiplied like rabbits. (laughs) There was 150 of us at this family reunion at Fall Creek Falls. And I noticed my mother-in-law, Mary's mom, was sitting over there, and she had this little notebook. And my mother-in-law had an eighth grade education, and her her father ran off, left them, and she had to, to quit school and take care of all, she had like four brothers, and she, her mom had to go to or her mom had to go to work. She had to take care of those boys. She was fourteen. Got married at fifteen. Now they were married like eight hundred years. <laughs> Mr. Hines was an elder during the Civil War. And I went over to her at Fall Creek Falls. She had that notebook out and her and her little Bible, and she by herself, made no pretense of any kind. 
And I just went over and said, Memo, what are you doing? She said, I'm just having a little time of prayer. And I said, what's the notebook? And she showed me. And all 150 of us in her family were in that notebook. And she said, I pray for every one of you by name every day. Amen. And I walked away from that time with my mother-in-law thinking, son, you need to learn how to pray. <laughs> That's praying. Amen. Not going to God and saying, God, I need something. Or going to God and saying, God, won't you do this? Or some of our brethren say, go to God and tell him what he's going to do. Yeah. You don't do that. Amen. You bow before him and say, would you please help Randy, my, my little girl, Mary, my baby needs him to be a better husband. I promise you, my mother-in-law probably said that many times. She never said it to my face, but I'll guarantee you her prayer, and it worked. I don't know that I'm a better husband. I'll tell you a quick story, and then we'll get back to where we are. Show you how God does things. Mary and I walk every day since she got so sick. We tried to walk every day about a mile. We're usually right in our neighborhood, but we're walking, and at this time of year, we walk at dusk because it's hot. So we're walking down the street. I don't like to walk on the sidewalk. I like to walk in the middle of the street. You know, it's kind of dangerous. <laughs> My wife don't like that, so that's why we do it. So we're walking down the street. We're at a stop sign not far from but there's nobody out for some reason this particular day. Normally there's kids, but there's nobody out. We stop at the stop sign, and this black car pulls up with black tinted windows. You can't see anything in this car. You've seen them. And the window starts to roll down. Well, Mary, and we're holding, key to this is we're holding hands as we walk. And the window starts to roll down. Mary's squeezing my hand like, I know you can't run, but you got to do something. <laughs> and she's squeezing my hand like she's, on the, she's always on the curbside, and I'm in the middle of the street, and the car's on the other side, and the window rolls down. There's a young couple in there, probably in their 30s. And the guy driving and the girl's in the passenger seat. And she leans over to him and says, how long have y'all been married? And I said, 49 years. And she's got this big smile on her face. She goes, it, it just made my day watching y'all walk down the street holding hands. Amen. And then here's what she said. What's the secret? I'm not making, I'm telling you, uh, Bill Clark, because I joke about this all the time. Remember, you ask. She said, what's the secret to being married? And I turned to Mary and said, uh, Mary, she did ask. <laughs> I didn't bring it up. Because Mary's all like, stop preaching to people in public. I said, she did ask. And I turned to her and I said, for us, it's that we're committed, first of all, to Jesus Christ. And then each other. And you can see the guy go like, can we go now? <laughs> and here's what she said. All I know is it made my day to watch y'all walking down the street holding hands. And I said to her, it made my day that you ask. And I told Mary said, you know, I never talked to anybody. And when we met in 1970, John was our youth director. And Mary and I met in 1970. And I'm not telling you this because I want you to think anything highly of Randy. I wasn't good looking. Let me put it that way. She said, what attracted me to you, Randy, was that you were a brand new Christian. I been saved three months, two months, and you talk about Jesus all the time. And she said, I've been saved at that point 10 years. I never talk about it. I said, well, yeah, Mary, you got such a powerful testimony. The way you sing, uh, you help lead worship, your heart, your kindness, your love. 
it just exudes Jesus. I talk about it because I can't shut up no matter what I'm doing. Now back to Marcus. That little sermonette that you're not being charged for, you'll get to what you're being charged for in a moment, is for this. You do nothing but pray for them. If, if you want to say, I love you, I'm praying for you, that's great. I've already had people contact me this week saying, this is what's, rumors are rumors, that's going to happen. We don't deal in rumors, we don't deal in gossip. What we do is we love each other. We love each other. That's, that's, that's what our elders want, to love, to pray, restore. That's it. And that's your prayer. Having said that, let's pray and we'll get into God's word. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Because without him, we have nothing. We have no hope, we have no peace, and we have no joy. We have no purpose in life. We specifically want to pray that for Marcus and Abby this morning. That peace that passes all understanding. That presence of the Holy Spirit as believers. That they know the love of Jesus as they love each other. And we pray, Father, that we know we can be part of that restoration by praying. And Lord, we covenant as a church and as individual believers, part of the same body, that we're going to pray for Marcus and Abby. We do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 115. Not Psalm 1, but Psalm 115. Kind of interesting how God, again, does things. Uh, as far as I know, Cameron had no idea what I was going to preach on today. And it's the sovereignty of God. This is what he was talking about as he was leading us in worship. Notice the title. If you look at your handout, you notice the title, Psalm 115 again. Where is our God? Now, for years, the number one question that non-believers ask is, where's your God when blank's going on? We were talking about this in a meeting not long ago. Brother John brought it up, and I think about it all the time. I'm an absolute avid nut about watching and learning about World War II. I cannot read enough about it. I cannot watch enough about it. My dad fought World War II. I had an uncle that was uh, shot in Europe. My dad fought in the Pacific. And I'm fascinated by World War II and what Satan was able to do through Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin, the evil that they perpetrated. It fascinates me to go back and see it. If you live, as John Mitchell said, well, I mean, if you live between World War I and World War II through the Depression, were those good times? Nobody had good, they were horrible. But God didn't stop being God. When 9-11 happened, I heard someone preaching about it afterwards, and someone saying, well, where was God when 9-11 happened? Non-believers, the number one question they're always going to ask, if you're God, it's a, it's a God of love like you say he is, then where is he when blank happens? Where was he on 9-11? And the guy that I heard preaching on it said this, and it was so profound I, have, I haven't forgotten it. Now, 20 years ago, over 20 now, he was at the 10th floor. He was at the 11th floor. He was at the first floor, second floor, third floor. He was everywhere. Now we know, we all know our God is omnipresent. We all know our God is omnipotent. And we all know that our God is omniscient. What I want you to focus on, for example, the, ter the tragedy that went on in Uvalde and has gone, even in our own city, people just shooting each other. Could God step in and just wipe all that out? Of course he could. 
But if God is going to step in and wipe out all evil, what does he have to do? He has to wipe out me, you. Because how many of us are righteous without Jesus Christ? There are none righteous, no, not one. And I didn't say that, God did. John Blunt and I were just talking out in the hall this morning in the foyer, just talking about reading the Bible and doing different things. And I mentioned to him that I believe the theme of the entire Bible is found in Habakkuk 2.4. Anybody know what that verse is? I didn't either until about a year ago when I taught it, so. But I learned so much. The theme of about the, uh, the message of Habakkuk 2.4 is the theme of the entire Bible. You know what it says in Habakkuk 2.4? You're going to memorize a verse today. Go home and get a tattoo this week. Get this tattooed on some part of your body. Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. You all know the verse. Didn't know it was Habakkuk 2.4. I didn't either. The righteous shall live by faith. Now focus with me for a moment. You know who the righteous are? They're not the really good Christians like my mother-in-law and other people that you know that love the Lord. Not the really good Christians. That doesn't mean, that's not who the righteous are. You know who the righteous are? Every person that's born again. When the Bible talks about saints, it's not talking about, again, people like my mother-in-law, just incredibly godly human beings. You know what a saint is in the Bible? Anybody that's born again. You go through Scripture. That's why this is so important. You go through Scripture, take out the patriarchs, the apostles, look at them. How many of them struggled in their faith? The only one that I can find in the Bible, and you never hear a negative struggle in his life, is Daniel. Now, he probably had them, it's just not recorded for us. Paul struggled. Peter struggled. Joseph struggled. Abraham struggled. David struggled. Those are, hey, you know, we're, we're talking about some of the guys that are at the top of the list. They struggled. The guys that were the closest to Jesus Christ when he was on planet Earth. Peter, James, John, the rest of them, when, they, when Jesus, particularly Peter, James, and John, they were with him at the transfiguration. Can you imagine that moment? You're standing on that mountain and suddenly you see the glory of God. Oh, it would be like, and then they didn't want to leave. You can't blame them. Moses and Elijah were there. Let's just hang out here and worship. God had other things they needed to do. But when Jesus needed them the most, where were they? They've gone or asleep. Every believer struggles. If you don't, you're God. So the fact that you struggle is part of the human nature that is you. So what God says, trust me. I don't make mistakes. I am there. And I'm always doing good. All this is the scripture. I'm always working good even though you don't see it right now. Some of it you will not see until you die. The good that he is doing. Lynn was talking about camp, and I went out one day and just watched, and, and I looked at those teenagers that we had out there and college students, and she's so right. The future of our church is bright. When people like me and Brother John are gone, God has got another whole generation Look at Cameron, how old is he, 12? <laughs> if it wasn't for the fact, I'm just glad he's losing his hair. It makes me feel a little better. 
think about guys like that at 25. That's how old he is. You know how much I knew about the Bible at 25? Next to nothing. A little bit that I've learned. I've been saved nine years. I've learned. So I was teaching Bible studies by that point. Teaching seventh grade boys and teaching high school kids. I just took a book, opened the book that they gave me, and I taught with the book. And it was, it was good stuff. It was the word of God. It was truth. But it wasn't that deeply personal to me. I wasn't a bad person. Jesus said, you are my church. What's the rest of that verse? Anybody remember? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, are we going to have difficult times? Yes. Jesus said so. He said, the world's going to hate you. Why? Hated me. You know what Christian means? You say, I'm a Christian. You know what you're literally saying in the original tongue? I'm a little Christ. That's, a, that's a, something serious to live up to, isn't it? But that's why it's Christ in you that's your hope of glory, not your good looks. I'm glad about that. Not your abilities. He takes your abilities, but he wants your availability to use them. Amen. And I don't care who you are. Lynn alluded to this earlier. I don't care who you are. If you're breathing, God has something for you to do for the kingdom. He does. Now back to Psalm 115. Where is he? Where is our God when difficult things happen? He's there working good and driving people to him. Think back for a moment, 20 years ago, 21 years ago. On September 11th, we had a prayer meeting on September 12th. How many people were in this room? There were no seats. There were no seats, and that was a Wednesday. The, for the next six weeks, every Sunday, how many people were in these seats? For two, two services, they packed because people were scared. They were terrified. They needed God. Do I only need God during tragedy? Of course not. We could go around the room right now, and every one of you, the possible exception of some of the young ones. Somewhere in your family, somebody you know is really hurting. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, economically. I was having this, I have a degree in economics, so that's, you know why I majored in economics in college? Because all you got to do is talk. Nobody knows what they're talking about. I started out in accounting. My wife's an accountant, and I started out in accounting, and I realized after two courses, I got into this thing called cost accounting. And I said, oh, my God, i got to get out of this. I can't even, Mary, every night, Mary says, Mary, this is what you're doing. This, I couldn't understand it. And I'm a 4.0 student, fairly intelligent human being. I could not figure out cost accounting. I said, i got to get out of this. So I went to uh, uh, my counselor, and I said, look, i got to change majors, but i got, but I got a, I got a Scholarship that runs out in eight semesters. He goes, you got to keep me something in the business school. Get me out of here. He said, well, how about finance? We talked about that for a minute. I said, no, I'm too much accounting in that. He said, what about marketing? That's real. I said, no, I that, that was pretty. He said, well, it's economics. Not a whole lot of people major in it, but all you got, really got to do is just talk and spit out theory. I said, that's me. <laughs> now, I was talking to his wife last week. With inflation like it is, this is back when Mary and I were first married, and inflation was so bad. 
And everybody is suffering from that. You don't think $5 a gallon gas is going to get your attention? It is. You go, Mary and I went to the grocery store yesterday, we bought like 30 things, it was almost 200 bucks. I said, Mary, you got to cut back. You stop buying brand names, you buy everything is equate or great value. Because you can't afford that, that good stuff anymore. You just can't. Does God know about inflation? I believe he does. Is he bigger than inflation? Is he bigger than the stupid politicians that run our country? Yes, he is. And we have to trust him. We have to pray, by the way, whether you, and this is something you probably don't want to do. You're supposed to pray for your politicians. Both parties. Man, I don't know about that now. Come on. Pray for them. Where's our God? Look at Psalm 115, context of this particular psalm. They sung, the children of Israel would sing it at Passover, celebrating the exodus from Egypt. We don't know who the author is. It's anonymous. And I think uh, God in his wisdom is the reason this particular psalm, we don't know who wrote it because the whole thing is just, it's a great, it's kind of like the book of Hebrews. We don't know for sure who wrote Hebrews. It's just a great exaltation about who our God is. And if you're a Hebrew, you don't need to go backwards. You need to go forward. This psalm is a great celebration of who our God is and what he's doing. We don't know who wrote it. We don't even know for sure when it was written. Probably written after the Babylonian exile as you read through it. Now the Babylonian exile, the Jews, the southern kingdom, Judah, had just returned after the Babylonian captivity. They were back in the land. There was no temple. The land had, by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon had just been leveled. The temple was gone. Jerusalem was gone. They had nothing to go back to. And now they're coming back, Ezra and Nehemiah in your Bible. They come back from, from the Babylonian captivity to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. Those were their two goals. And Ezra and Nehemiah, the story of that, historically, what went on. In the process, they are facing incredible mocking by a group called the Samaritans. There's a reason why Jews, this is the reason Jews hated Samaritans, which is the reason Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan to show them, you're not going to hate anybody. Not if you're going to follow me. So they had the Samaritans that were mocking him, the pagans that were around them. While they're in the Babylonian captivity, the land's been filled up with pagans. Now they come back. They don't want these Jews, these Hebrews, to come back and take over the land. And so they're mocking the Jews and saying, where's your God? Remember they had that great Solomon's beautiful temple, and they had just leveled it. It was gone. So where's your God? Where is our God? Look at verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. So the psalmist cries out to God. It's not about us, God. And boy, you got to grab that principle as a believer. It is not about me. When you hear some guy preaching and telling you that you just tell God what to do, you need to understand that's a false teacher and turn that clown off. That's a theological term, clown. Not unto us is the glory, God. It's all unto you. Where's your God? Number one on your handout. He's alone in glory. What does the word alone mean? You ever been alone? I love to be alone, by the way. You ever been alone? It means just you. But if you're a believer, you're never alone. Because it's just you and whom? Your God. Your God. 
He alone is God of glory. Jesus is firstborn over all creation. It does not mean, as some cultists teach, it does not mean he was the first one created. No. You know what firstborn means in the original language, the Greek that it was written? It means he's preeminent over all of it. What's the word preeminent mean? It means he owns it. Jesus the Christ is preeminent over all creation. He alone is God. One God, three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image. One God. Now back to verse 1. Not unto us. God, it's not about us. We're not here to glorify ourselves. We're here to glorify you. Why were they in Babylon in the first place? Because of their sin and their rebellion against God. They didn't learn from their northern brethren who went through the Assyrian captivity, those ten tribes, because of their sin and their rebellion. They didn't learn. And so they went into the Babylonian captivity for doing the same thing. Read the book of Daniel. That, that's what went on. You know who the leaders were in Israel when they went into the Babylonian captivity and from Babylon? The leaders of the Hebrews, you know who it was? It was people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were teenagers. Fifteen years old. Daniel was my favorite character in the Old Testament. Fifteen years old in the Bible, Daniel 1.8 says, Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself. Fifteen. Man, 15, I couldn't find my way around making the right decision. And then God introduced me to Jesus Christ and my wife Mary and people like John, and things got better. And I realized there was something more important than me. How many 15-year-olds understand that? Why does someone like that kid just start shooting people? Because they want somebody to think about them. They're desperately looking for meaning and purpose and hope. And the only place you could find that is in Jesus Christ. Amen. But man, will he give it to you? Will he give it to you? Because that's who he is. Not unto us, but to your name. Back to the verse 1. O Lord, you're worthy of glory. You alone are worthy of glory. It is never to be about us. The book of Isaiah, the Bible says this. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. For my own sake, I will act. And how can my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. End quote. And the reason God said that through the prophet Isaiah to the children of Israel is that they had adopted pagan idolatry. Remember when they were going into the promised land. God made it clear, when you go in there, you need to wipe out the Canaanites. People read that and say, well, God was cruel. Why did God tell them to wipe out the Canaanites? He makes it very clear. He says, because if you don't, they're going to steal your heart away from me. That's what they're going to do. And you will adopt, you'll intermarry with the pagans, and you will adopt their idolatry, and you will forget me. And that's exactly what happened historically. You know who brought the children of Israel back to God? They had lost God's word. They didn't know where it was. They'd lost it. A young man became king named Josiah, eight years old, in the children's ministry. Eight years old. Most godly man in all Israel. 
Sad commentary on everybody else, isn't it? Eight. And in 18 years, he turned the nation around, brought them back to the word, brought them back to celebrating God. Because even at eight, he knew this ain't right. We got to do something about this. How did he become king at eight? I don't know. It's all about lineage. But he led them back. That's why Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. Of course, Timothy was about 30. Big difference between 30 and 8. I've got an 8-year-old granddaughter. Think about it. Now look at her. Think about how young that is. And God said, I've got something for you to do. And he did it. God has something for you to do. Are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? You know how I got into teaching the Bible when I was at Central Church, college student, freshman? Somebody like Lynn stood up and said, we need somebody to teach seventh grade boys because nobody wants to be around them. Now I, do you, now I understand why nobody wants to be around seventh grade boys. I get it. But back then I was 19 years old and I thought, okay, nobody else will do it, I'll do it. So I tried the choir one time, and uh, Mary's brother was the worship leader. He said, Randy, you need to move on. <laughs> so I just started teaching seventh grade boys, group up on Bible study. I'd take them over to my house. We'd do things together. I'd make them rake my leaves. Just spent time with them. Got to love them. And saw them. Some, I'm still friends with some of them to this day. That was 1972. You just never know what God's going to do. You just got to be available. I didn't know what I was doing, but nobody else would do it. So I said, I'm going to give it a shot. And I fell in love with teaching the Bible. I found out that was my spiritual gift. I didn't know what, that, I didn't know what a spiritual gift was. Somebody showed me, taught me. I fell in love with teaching the Bible. Because I realized how special this book is. It's not just a 66 religious tone we put together in this great book and we call it God's Word. No, it is God's Word. The eternal, self-existent creator of the universe who is our Father says, you want to talk to me? Here, just read. You don't have to sit in your room and wait for me to show up. I'm already talking. Here, read it. That's what Psalm 115 is. God's talking to his, his kids through the psalmist, whoever it is. We don't want to give our lost world, unbelievers, a reason to mock our God. So what we do is we live for him. Through the good, the bad, and Clint Eastwood fans, the ugly. We live for God. You take the bad and it's an opportunity. It's easy to live for God when everything's good. But when you've got a powerful testimony when things are bad, it gets people's attention. It just does. They realize there's something more there. There's something more there. God said to the prophet Ezekiel, when they come to the nations, and that's the Gentiles, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name, what we were just talking about when they came in with the Canaanites. When they, when they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. 
But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. In other words, Israel, when they were among the pagans and the Canaanites, they profaned the name of God. They didn't honor God. Read the book of Judges. God should have wiped them out. You don't think the Bible, the Old Testament is about grace. Read the book of Judges. It's full of grace. I had concern for my holy name. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not, I do, not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake which you have profaned among the nations, wherever you went, I will, I, God, will sanctify my great name, set it apart as holy, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. By the way, this passage, in case you're not hearing, God uses the word profane about 12 times, meaning what? He wasn't happy. They profaned. Look the word up. Profaned his name. You have profaned in their midst. They see it. They're, your God is mocked by the way you live. The nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. End quote. Here's what God is saying. You spent all these years profaning my name, not living for me, not honoring me, not glorifying me, but you will. And I will, do, I will discipline you, whatever I got to do to get you to the point where you obey. The righteous shall live by faith, and if you're living by faith as I will obey God. And I'm going to be honored in you. And God always had a remnant. Small group, Joshua and Caleb. They're the only two that got to go into the promised land out of that original group. Two people. But God was honored by them. The Bible says, quote, they had a different spirit. Different spirit than everybody else. Everybody else said, we're not going in there. Those dudes are big. We're not going in there. Joshua and Caleb said, we have to. God has said he's already given it to us. we got to go get it. They wouldn't do it. So God says what? It's alone in glory. Look at verse 1 again. Unto us, Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of two things. Your mercy, your truth. Please note this. The word mercy here in Hebrew he, we talked about it a second ago. The word mercy here in verse 1 in Hebrew means grace. Same thing, it's grace. Loving kindness. You know what grace is? It's God giving you something you do not deserve. Amen. Years ago, C.S. most of you have heard of C.S. Lewis. If you haven't, you need to read more. C.S. Lewis, great mind, Christian mind. And he, there was a convention or whatever they called it back then he's walking through this room he got all these theologians together which is a bunch of guys who think they're smart and don't really know anything but he's walking through this room with theologians and they're discussing why Christianity is unique why are we different than all these other religions you ever had that conversation people have it all the time so C.S. Lewis is walking through the room and, and they said man we're just discussing why Christianity is different and unique. What makes us unique above all other religions? And he, without stopping, he just kept walking. He goes, the word is grace. It's grace. Check it out. It's one of the things that challenged when I was in college. It happened to me. People said, well, professors as well as peers, others, why do you believe all this stuff? Why are you a Christian? And I thought, well, I don't know. Is it because John talked me into it? Or I, I really like hearing his brother Jimmy preach. It got my attention. Why? Because Mary is? 
I said, I'm going to find out why. And I started reading people like C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer. I didn't even know what I was reading. But I began to do that because I wanted to know, why do I believe this? And what I discovered was, because it's the truth. And Jesus said, what will truth do for you? It'll set you free. And I needed to understand that. And I became absolutely convinced that this book was true. Not because somebody talked me into it, because I studied it for myself. And found it to be true. Prophetically, when it talks about science, scientifically, it's accurate. Historically, it's accurate. And it's unique. Here's why. I began to study other religions. Do the same. You don't have to study. Just read. Every other religion that's ever been on planet Earth or is on planet Earth right now, you're made right with whoever your God is. Everybody has a God. Even an atheist has a God himself. No matter who your God is, your concept of God, you're made right before that God by doing something. You have to do something. Christianity says what? You can't do it. And you know what? I know I can't do it. The church I grew up in, I was terrified of God because I knew that I told my mama a lie or I knew I had a bad thought. And I wasn't a bad kid, I just the kid. But I was terrified God was going to zap me one day and that would be it. And then someone introduced me to grace. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. No matter how much, how good is good enough, there's some great books written on that. How do you know you're good enough? The answer is you don't. And that's why you need Jesus. If you miss everything else I say today, get this. It is not what you do that makes you right with God. It's what Jesus did for you. It's his work, not yours. The church I grew up in, it was all about good works. You, you want to be a good little boy and please God. But then I realized I can't please God. I'm not good enough. Especially when I began to study the Bible. Because I, and that's why the Sermon on the Mount is so cool. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made one point above all. I mean, it's an amazing sermon. Here's the point he made. You don't have to do anything to be guilty of sin. All you got to do is think about it. Oh, my God. Because he said that to the Pharisees who thought they were right with God. They didn't believe they sinned. Read Philippians, what Paul said. I was blameless when it came to the law. So Jesus said, if you thought about committing adultery with a woman, you're guilty. Now, how many men in that crowd hadn't thought about it? None. Same thing with the women. None. They were guilty. That was Jesus' point. Back to verse 1, because of truth. Truth. God is alone in glory. Number 2. Do this or quickly. Get you out of here. Number 2. John doesn't believe that, but he's probably right. <laughs> Number 2. Your God, who, where is he? He is absolute God over man's universe and man's idols. Again, no matter who you are, you've got a God. And even if your God is yourself, you're underneath the sovereignty of the one true God. He is absolute God, alone in glory and absolute God. Look at verse 3. 
Verse 2, excuse me. Why should the Gentiles say, where's their God? They were being mocked by the pagans. Verse 3. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. The pagans are where? Here's the, the picture in Hebrew. The pagans are on earth thinking, where's your God? What's the psalmist say? Oh, our God is in the universe and he owns you. He owns you. Verses 3 through 8 in Psalm 115 are a contrast between the God in heaven and the idols of the pagans on earth. Our God's in heaven. He's above all. That's the picture, the metaphor. It means he's supreme. He's omnipotent. He's absolute ruler. He's infinite. He's not confined to a space and time. He's infinite. He does Whatever he pleases. In other words, you're not going to defeat him and you're not going to stop him because he's God. Next week, I'm going to share some other verses with you in, in this psalm. I want to share one slide with you or one verse. I just want you to listen from Psalm 103. You don't have to turn there. The Bible says this. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. When you get down to verse 4, their idols are silver and gold. They are the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do I love this passage. They have mouths. They build their idols with mouths, but they can't speak. Hmm. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell anything. They have hands, but they can't handle anything. They have feet, but they can't walk. What kind of God did you got? Growing up, and I wasn't a Christian, growing up, I loved Greek and Roman mythology. I could not, I read every single thing I could get my hands on. I've always loved to read. It's one of the reasons I think I like being alone, because of escaping from my dad primarily. I love to read. But if you go back and you study Greek and Roman mythology or, or Egyptian, Pick a group. They all had idols. And none of them could do anything. Who, this, the take a quick story and then we're done. If you've got an idol, you build a giant edifice, you give it a nose, you give it ears, you give it a mouth, you give it all eyes, you give it all those things. If you build it, who's God? You are. How could they not see that? This is a true story from history. I'll make sure I get the name right so I can find it. Alexandria, Egypt, ancient Alexandria, there's a great temple that was built, covered an entire mountaintop. It's called the Serapion, the Serapion, excuse me. It was a temple of Serapia who overlooked the Nile River. And so they built this, just like all mythology, they built this giant building, covered it outside in jewels, no telling how much it was worth on the top of this mountain to the god Serapia so that the Nile River would bless them. That's why they did it. Well, later on, the emperor Theodius, Theodosius, who was a Christian, commanded that they demolish that heathen temple. Now, the temple had a statue on the front of it, a massive statue, a colossal image that had its hands outstretched and covered the entire building. 
You ever see that thing in uh, Eureka Springs? What's that called? We call it Giant Jesus, but I don't Big, well, big Jesus or Giant Jesus? You, you go to Eureka Springs, you see that thing. This would, Giant Jesus would pale in comparison to this thing. It was huge. And so they go in to destroy it. And, and the, even they, Christians going in to destroy this pagan temple, they look at it and go, wow. And so Theodos uh, tells them, strike it. They hit it, nothing happens. So finally somebody climbs up where the head is and chops the head off. And you know what happens? Thousands of rats come running out. Full of rats. They all started laughing. They tore that thing down. And then they went over and watched the Nile River to see if it was going to get mad. Nothing happened. You know why? Because that God did not exist. Your God is God. Where is he? He's everywhere. And he's everywhere you need him to be. Bow your heads, please. Father, as we get ready to close out our time together, I pray for all of us as believers that we would never forget who our God is. Never. That our God is alone in that position. There is no other. He will not allow his glory to be given to others. And if we choose to do so, we will be disciplined. So, Lord, I pray for Randy for all of us that we would choose to follow the one true God in our daily lives as his children to please him because he alone is worth our worship he alone is God in glory and he's omnipotent over even all those who mock him he's still God the only self-existent thing in the universe is our God why would we not serve him pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we, as we sing one last song of praise.